We are building, we are building, we are building. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Daniels, host of the Build Community Through Love podcast, where we highlight the efforts and strategies used to empower and grow community through economic development, community development, and education. Episode four here. I welcome you to it. We have a great friend of mine, Catherine Reed. Now, Catherine Reed is a physician assistant with the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and she's been through so much during healthcare. Um, healthcare is definitely a big thing right now, especially as we are going through this uh, COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, man, it's crazy. Uh, she will tell you she's not necessarily on the front lines, but just knowing that she has her, uh, 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 she has her hold within healthcare to help people that's where her heart that's where her passion is to just help people um and right now we just lift up all of our healthcare workers uh in prayer to make sure that they are safe their families remain safe as they continue to keep us from dying keep us safe keep us healthy um and so i'm just happy to be able to have her on today uh just to share some um, some great insight with us. She talks about how, you know, she first went to school for one thing and then, you know, had this change of heart and how important it was to have, you know, somebody there who looked like her to help her kind of go along her journey um, to switch gears while in school um, and really pursue medicine kind of straight on. So she went into becoming uh, a paramedic um, and then she's crossed over to actually being inside the hospital as a physician assistant. So much great knowledge here. And so I'm going to go ahead and shut up and get into the show. Uh, so I'm Catherine Reed. I currently re reside in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, but I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. Um, I was raised in a two parent household with one sister, two dogs. How deep are we going here, Joey? Is this, is this good? It depends. Um, <laughs> it depends. Like, was it grass? <laughs> was it fence? <laughs> we had yards. Yeah, we had yards. I mean, oh, man. Uh, it's a small town. Um, I considered it rather big because when I was young, I didn't know any better. Uh, now, when I try to explain it to people, they're like, oh, you're from like a small town. I'm like, no, it's technically a city based on size and population, but nobody wants to hear that. Um, so I did public schooling there, um, got my associates in electromechanical engineering technologies. Um, my second two years of high school, I graduated, uh, moved to Pittsburgh in 2010. And I started at the University of Pittsburgh in the engineering department. I realized that I'm really not gifted at math. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> it doesn't come easily to me and it's hard. Um, and I realized how much I really wanted to be in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like engineering um, would have adjusted my GPA to a point that I wouldn't be able to pursue other things outside of that once I graduated, which in hindsight is not the case. But at that point, um, with the knowledge that I had, I realized that truly medicine was what I wanted to do. And I wanted to make sure I was setting myself up for success. So I switched from engineering, which is when we met actually 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. probably at NSBPA when it, or, <laughs> and Nesby, mm -hmm. whenever um, there was a conference in Pittsburgh. Um, so after my first year, second year at Pitt, I switched out of engineering um, and moved into the School of Health and Rehab Sciences. Um, where I did um, the emergency medicine major, which allows you to train to become a paramedic um, for your last year, two years 
Um, so then I was working as a paramedic for Northwest EMS, uh, which is a little suburb area um, outside of um, city of Pittsburgh. It was a wonderful experience. I loved every second of it. Um, and then I realized that there were parts of that um, that didn't really align with what I wanted to do with patient care. I felt like I was kind of stuck, right? You can take them from the house to the hospital, but then after that, your interaction is kind of done. Mm -hmm. uh, there were lots of folks who I wanted to know, like, what happened next? And how do I get you not to be in an ambulance every day with your diabetes, high blood pressure, stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was pretty good. I really liked doing that work. Um, but I, because of those thoughts, I decided to apply to PA school, um, which was an experience in itself. It's expensive. It's hard. Every school has different requirements. Science GPA is a huge deal. Um, and but like no math, there's no math involved in that. It's like, you need like two math classes, not like <laughs> classes, which is pretty much all of engineering or at least the first couple of years. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, a little bit. A little bit um but so yeah i applied and i didn't really expect to get in because there's a lot of um, information about folks not getting in their first time and how competitive it is um, i was pleasantly surprised i got a couple of interviews um, i got two seats um, one in ohio and one in pennsylvania uh, the school in ohio wasn't accredited fully so i talked to a lot of mentors and they kind of said "Catherine, it's great to go to a pa school but if it's not accredited you can't sit and get your actual <laughs> certification so you should probably go somewhere accredited right. uh, so i went to the people that are smarter than me uh, at that point in my in my space and so i went to the university of pittsburgh um, again and got my master's in physician assistant studies i graduated in 2016 uh, started working in a federally qualified health center in pittsburgh in primary care initially um, and then worked there for eight months and then moved on. So now I'm at the VA hospital in Pittsburgh uh, where I work on an inpatient psychiatric unit um, and I do the internal medicine side. So I manage everything from rashes to cancer is kind of what I say. So diabetes, high blood pressure, if they haven't had the screenings that they need from a primary care perspective, I try to get that in because these are the folks that fall in the cracks. Because um, if your mental health is somewhere else, like you're not existing in that physical body, right? So you're not paying attention to the pain and the different mm -hmm. symptoms that you may be having that are indicative of something else. Um, so yeah, that's what I do now. I also did my yoga teacher training, a 200 hour training um, in 2018. Um, all about wellness, all about the supportive body, all about you yeah, know, the whole body, the whole person. Exactly, that's awesome. Well, let's let's yeah. let's go back a little bit. I guess a lot of bit. Like, how did you? So, you left you you left high school. You said with an associate's degree already. I did. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's awesome. So so let's go back there. So, are you where you are now? Is mm -hmm. that was that the vision that you had leaving high school? Yes and no. I would say in high school, I kind of thought I was going to be a biomedical engineer and then a physician. That would okay. have been, you would have asked me then. I would say at this point, looking back, that never would have, that never would have worked for me because mm. biomedical engineering, I think I would have ended up more in a research track kind of mm. job um, and in the lab and knowing me, you know me, that's not really me. I need to be like around people, interacting yeah, with yeah. people. That's like my Absolutely. joy, <laughs> my passion. So so, tell, so walk me through that transition, because I feel like a lot of people get caught, especially in higher education, a lot mm -hmm. of people get caught in a track and mm -hmm. their friends are in that track 
and mm-hmm. you know their parents are you know mm-hmm. encouraging them because they think that's the track that you should be on right so walk me through that transition you said this is between what year one and year two correct yeah year one and year two and so um, like walk mm-hmm. me through like the mentality of that who you were talking to and then like you know what it took for you to actually go ahead and, and actually pull the plug so between year one and year two i failed calculus <laughs> Calc one um, or Calc two, one of the two. And I had to retake it the summer between those two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was talking a lot to my parents and to my um, academic advisor at the time through the engineering school, Simeon Saunders, who is dope and who was black male, who um, had really been the one to kind of help me through that whole phase, like starting out at Pitt. Um, it's a big transition when you're used to getting material, just in innately getting it right you read it it makes sense you regurgitate it on a test you're able to to pass and do things um and college level courses were not like that for me it was a big transition so um dealing with kind of like the imposter syndrome of being in a space where i felt like everyone else was getting it and i wasn't um which is something that happens i think for a lot of folks of color um coming into college or other spaces as you transition in your career um and kind of working through that with Simeon a little bit and my parents Um, and working through this idea that perfectionism is not the goal, right? That there is a goal, like there's something to be said for the development of self and figuring out who you are. Um, And sometimes that involves failing and switching and adjusting. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not that person. I am very much a person who likes to have a plan, achieve the goal and continue moving. So I think during my conversations with my parents, um, Simeon, and some of my friends who are also struggling, but chose to stay that track, um, I realized that it just wasn't for me. I knew my goal was in medicine. I knew I wanted to be in medicine. And -hmm. I felt like this was going to be a hindrance to that. And I think by being able to see that broader picture and with the support of my parents and um, Simeon, really, um, I made that transition. Uh, It was terrifying. I felt like I was giving up on something um, because it was something that I had said for years, right? It was what I wrote in college essays. It was what I had been telling people, right? All of those Mm -hmm. things. but truly, I think it was the support system that I had and the recognition that I, I knew I wanted to be in medicine, which is different than some folks coming into college who don't really know where they want to end up on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was blessed to have that, that mentality that I knew medicine was where I wanted to be that helped guide me a bit. So having that representation of um, a black male professor mm-hmm. who, could, who could provide that insight um, what what did that do for you, a person of color at a at a primarily white institution, um, mm-hmm. to be able to to feel confident and comfortable making that transition? And this is going to be consistent when we talk about you know uh, the organization that you started because you know having that representation is key because if you can't see yourself you know somewhere or if if you know that person is not in a position to give you encouragement and let you know that the the actual decision that you're making is not going to you know pretty much derail your your dreams and your goals mm-hmm. and your vision talk mm-hmm. to me about like what he really meant to you in that and 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 how you were able to have confidence in yourself to make that transition so i would say that Simeon was really open he wasn't somebody that I felt like I couldn't speak to, right? So he was accessible. He was somebody who I'd email and be like, can I come meet with you? Or he'd just say, walk in, I'm here, right? Which is, which is half the battle in academia when you walk in as a freshman. You're like, who do I talk to? How can I talk to you? You're obviously worlds above me in all these ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was accessible and sitting in his office, he would just joke around, Kat, how we doing? Let's talk, 
and would get to the nitty gritty. It wasn't just about academics. It was about everything. How are you feeling? Are you making friends? What is college looking for looking like for you right now? Like kind of trying to figure out full Catherine, like who is Catherine as a person and not just as a number, as a student, um, which I think is very specific to having somebody who sees you as a person um, and sees the human in the student, um, which seems to be a little bit easier. Um, I would say from my experience, when they, when they look like you, I could identify with him because he reminded me of my friends, my dad, you know, like people in my life who, who mm -hmm. I care about um, and see the humanity in. And I felt like that was reflected back to me. Um, so just having open conversations about how I felt and, um, what my goals were in life, not just in the time that I was going to be in the engineering department. Um, and of course he was like, you know, I'm really sad to see you go. I really think you can do this if you want to do this, but if you don't want to do this, this is okay too. And kind of gave me that permission to make that decision. Um, which was something I needed at the time. I needed somebody to say, you know, this is up to you, but also you can do it either way. I have confidence in you. Um, and he also checked in with me after I made the transition over to school of health and rehab sciences. He was somebody who checked in, who made sure he was available. Um, and I kind of returned the same type of energy. We kind of both um, checked in and actually we're Facebook friends now. So he kind of follows my life and I follow his a little bit and got his PhD. So um, yeah, there's just, there was just um, a development of rapport and of friendship that I recognize that he was being authentic and genuine with with what he saw in me and with what he felt my capabilities were mm -hmm. um and i think that all of that kind of kind of helped me develop the person as i moved forward in my career and in my education then you said he gave you permission to make the decision and i think mm -hmm. i think that's so crucial like even even as adults right even even mm -hmm. as we're going through life it's just like you have the permission to do what you would like to do Mm -hmm. You have to have the courage to pull the plug, you yeah. know, and, and, and to make that decision and decisions are always hard, you know, like, well, certain ones are always difficult. Um, yeah. But knowing from someone else that you trust that you have permission to do something that doesn't go, uh, that's against the status quo, you know, that's, that, that, that's, that has to be, that has to be comforting. And so I remember joking with you all the time back when you were, um, so I guess back in the day, they called it like the paddy wagon. Is that true? Or am I just tripping? <laughs> the paddy wagon? Yeah, the paddy wagon. I could be tripping. Or <laughs> I probably watched like the wrong movie. But anyway, so I used to always joke like, hey, I'm just going to accidentally break my knee on the side of the road and have Catherine come pick me up. on the Oh, road. in the ambulance. <laughs> yes, I'm like a paddy wagon at Oh. So tell me about tell me about that experience, like you know, because I'm sure you're not taking like great calls all the time. I'm sure there's like some calls middle of the night, you know, mm -hmm. some stuff. And especially you're in Pittsburgh, and you know, mm -hmm. I have family in Pittsburgh, so I kind of know the city a little bit. But yeah. tell me about that experience. How was that like? Um, I loved being a paramedic. I loved the hands-on aspect. I loved being able to be in the back of an ambulance with a patient that was my patient, right? Which was somebody who I was caring for, who was in my, my responsibility, right? I felt very strongly about um, making sure that they had the best care that I could provide based on the protocols that I was given from, you know, the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so I would say that it offered me a really interesting glimpse of working class folks, um, mm. specifically within, within healthcare um, and, and both both sides of that coin. So there are lots of folks who are 
so smart and have so much experience in paramedicine. And it's interesting to watch the dynamics when, when you bring a patient into a hospital and all of a sudden you're looked at as an ambulance driver, in quotes, which is super demeaning. Like these people have experience dealing with life-threatening emergencies outside of a brick and mortar institution with all of the best equipment, right? right. Um, you're, you're, if you're not in a city like Pittsburgh where you have a bunch of level one trauma centers, you are 30 plus minutes away from the nearest trauma center, you are doing medicine. You are the reason these people are making it to these other spaces in one mm -hmm. piece, right? And there is a missing um, kind of respect, I think, in general. I would say my experience was, I was young, I was super young, I was 21, I think, when I started working as a paramedic, um, and I was surrounded by folks who had been doing it their whole life. Like, their family had been in paramedicine or in fire departments with the kind of first responder background, um, and just, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot both, like, skill set-wise of what's taught in schools and what actual like what it looks like to practice on people who aren't going to be the perfect patient who aren't going to have the symptoms that you think they're going to have um there's a lot of bad parts of paramedicine and i think medicine in general in general um lots of patients that you lose this was during the during the ongoing opioid epidemic right so um doing lots of resuscitation in houses where there are kids and both parents are clearly high but one is overdosing cys has had 15 calls but the one parent is still coherent. Like there are parts that just tug on your heartstrings for real. Um, and, and you also see the missing link between primary care, right? So there are patients that would say, I don't have a primary care doctor who would run out of their diabetes medications and then need you to take them to the hospital once a month. And you just knew you were going to get that call. You knew it because they don't have somebody who's checking in, making sure their meds are filled. Not maybe because of anything they're doing, but lack of access, right? It might just be there's not somebody in their community they can get to. The bus routes aren't, aren't working. Um, wow. There aren't people in network. There's a lot. Wow. So as I hear you talking, and I'm actually a community builder, right? So like, I, I think, I guess as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm, I'm getting, I guess, excited, but I'm also getting, um, not because of, you know, the, the, the trauma and people pretty much, you know, want, like, they want to meet you at their worst. And so you yeah. have to pretty much, you know, be prepared. be prepared to meet everybody at their worst, mm -hmm. but you're also a conduit of information mm -hmm. to, you know, the levels of access, the levels of inequity, mm -hmm. the levels of different, of disenfranchisement, all of that kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. um, what you also said that was very interesting is uh, if you are a conduit, there has to be some kind of flow. And if the flow stops the moment you, you know, uh, drive up to the ER because there's a lack of respect for those on the other end. Once you receive a patient, mm -hmm. then I guess there is a, a, a missing link there where, you know, we, you pretty much have in that experience, identify all the different nodes across your city mm -hmm. where there's a lack of access, where there's lack of resources, there's mm -hmm. lack of everything. But right. then what you also pointed out, and I want you to, to say this again, in a common language, uh, you said a level one oh, uh, trauma. trauma center. What does that look like for places like, for instance, out in media, Pennsylvania, where my dad's from, or, mm -hmm. you know, the rural parts of Arkansas? Like, what does that really look like mm -hmm. from, a, from a paramedic standpoint? And how are you guys really not just, you know, providing care, but also building within your community? 
So I would say if you're in a more rural area, so a level one trauma center is a trauma center um, that has the capabilities of a multitude of specialties. So they can handle things right. like um, car crashes with people that are having multiple fractures who are in some type of shock state, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have specialties like critical care medicine, folks who can be their trauma surgeons, who can be there to repair bones and vessels, things like that. You have people who are there um, in the neurology side of the world. So if you're having a stroke, a neurosurgeon, you can push TPA, which is a medication that breaks up clots. Um, you have access to a million and one other like very high level um, of medical care. Um, and those are the folks that you want <laughs> um, if you're having like the worst day of your life, right? And it becomes like a heart attack or something. You want cardiologists, you want an access to a cath lab so that you can have a cardi cardiac surgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon snake something up your um, femoral artery to get into your heart and to find the clot, stent that clot, make sure you're living, right? Or mm -hmm. open injuries. Like those are, those are the types of high level things that you'll find at level one trauma centers. If you are in somewhere rural, um, if you are somewhere further out, those trauma centers are spread out more. Um, they're usually based in larger cities um, because usually they're linked with an academic institution. Um, so like UPMC Presbyterian here, um, University of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Medical Centers, Presbyterian Hospital is a level one trauma center. Um, Allegheny, um, Allegheny Health Network has their own level one trauma center too. So if you're living outside of those spaces, um, time is of the essence, right? If you're having a heart attack or a stroke, um, but access is the missing link there. So they do have obviously helicopters, so flight paramedicine. So you have nurses, paramedics um, who, are, who are flying to where you are and getting you to these level one trauma centers as quickly as they can. Um, but that requires the people on the ground, the paramedics who are coming to your house and interfacing with you initially to recognize exactly what's going on and whether it's critical or not. And then making the call to get somebody to you as quickly as possible who can mm -hmm. actually get to that level one trauma center. Um, and as a caveat to that, there are lots of spaces, um, especially the emergency medicine folks at the University of Pittsburgh who were looking at paramedics working kind of as a primary care conduit, right? So they would be the ones going into people's homes to check on medications, make sure they had everything, checking their sugar, check, checking blood pressures and doing pre-hospital kind of care to try to prevent them from needing an ambulance and then needing transport to a hospital for a more critical thing, right? Um, yeah. So there are people who are working on, on that side of it, especially mm -hmm. in um, rural communities and places out like that. Um, but I would say, yeah, it's always gonna be an issue with access. Um, local community hospitals aren't gonna have a neurologist on staff all the time, aren't gonna have a cardiologist on staff all the time. Um, it's just not feasible. So you really have to figure out um, what's critical, what's not critical, and how to get those patients to the care they need as quickly as they can, or as quickly as you can. That's interesting. So tell me about the, the, the best story you had <laughs> while, you're, while you're going through. I mean, um, being, being on it, being, is it, is it ambulance, a ambulance, <laughs> am, am, ambulance? <laughs> what was your, like, what, what was that one story that you always take with you and, and actually tell all your grandkids? In the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Uh, there are two probably that, that I can think of off the top of my head. So I'll give them to you brief so they come up to a story like this. Okay. Um, so the first one would be um, one of my favorite partners and I, Mark Hansen. Um, he's an EMT. He's fantastic. Go, oh, Mark Hansen. Anyway, um, he taught me a lot. So we were 
on our way at 7 a.m. coming back to the station to switch shifts. We were coming off the shift and we got a call for a guy having a heart attack, um, which was like two minutes from where we are. So we we're like, we'll just go because we're here. Obviously, one of those critical scenarios, you need to be timely. Um, and we walked in and this man, he was in a factory setting and he was gray. I've never seen a human gray before. He was gray and looked like he was struggling to breathe. We walked in. He legitimately took his last breath at that moment. And we we're like, oh, and immediately jumped into action, CPR, getting everything ready, got his IV, got his EKG, blah, 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 all the things. And we brought him back. That is the only patient that I've ever done CPR on that came back, was awake when we got him to the outside, to the hospital, the level one hospital, mm-hmm. without what we could see as brain trauma or loss of brain matter from loss of oxygenation, which is truly like part of what comes with when your heart's not working and you're not pumping blood to your brain. Um, And I believe we checked back in later on and found out he made a full recovery and was like at his normal neurocognitive state, was able to like go back to his normal life. Um, And that's a win for paramedics and for paramedicine, right? Uh, Because you CPR on people forever and they don't come back. Um, so that was a really nice win, I guess is the best way to, to say it both for him and for us as a team coming in, doing what we need to do to get him where he could have definitive care so they could mm-hmm. figure out what was in his heart and get that taken care of. Um, that one. And then one of my last days as a paramedic, um, before I transitioned to PA school, I had a call that was also a woman having chest pain. We've been having chest pain for two days. Her husband had been giving her nitroglycerin, which is a medication to help dilate Um, the arteries. So if you have a clot, it'll help kind of move the artery away from that clot. So hopefully you're not having that type of chest pain. Um, But she was having a type of heart attack where nitroglycerin makes it worse um, because Mm -hmm. it's just the heart's not able to pump as well. And we got to her, we got her to the ambulance. We were on a really busy day um, and she arrested um, in the back of the ambulance um, on- What does that mean? So she stopped responding. Her heart completely stopped working. Okay. So she didn't have pulse. She wasn't breathing. Um, so initially when we talked to her, she was kind of out of it because she felt really awful. But by the time we got her in the ambulance and going, um, she was with me, she was with me, and then she wasn't. Um, we pulled over to do CPR, and her husband was in the front seat and said to me, is she okay? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and the part of that story that's hard for me is that I can't lie. And you can see me working on your wife, pressing on her chest in a way that no one should ever experience their loved one being, you know, ex- right. like round, right? Um, and we did everything we could and got her to the hospital and she's not someone that made it. Um, but the human aspect of that, of having a patient who, a patient family member tell you like, hey, are they gonna be okay? And you having to come to grips with this patient that you probably can't save and you're gonna still try your darndest because the person in front of you loves this person and you're going to do whatever you can. Right. Um, And the honesty that that takes and kind of the, the trauma of that, right. Of losing patients, but with the human aspect, the family member right there in your face asking you, are they going to be okay? And I said, Mm -hmm. I we're doing what we can. I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make sure she is okay. But I, right now she is not. And he said, okay, turned around, stared out the front of the ambulance and let me do my job. Yeah. But that, that kind of speaks to like the two different sides of, of any type of medicine, but specifically as a paramedic or EMT, like you're, you're seeing that trauma, you're having that experience a lot. Um, and kind of the, 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 
PTSD, right, that can come, post-traumatic stress disorder that can come from repetitively experiencing loss and trauma and seeing things that lots of people don't want to see and lots of people don't have to see terrible things, right? So I think both sides of that are things that I'll probably share with with people because I always hype up the paramedic field and the EMT field and the folks that are doing that work, but you have to be prepared to like handle your own mental health and be able to to deal with other people having the worst day of their lives, for sure, or best in the other guy. That's incredible. Superheroes. They are. Agreed. Superheroes. At this point, but they definitely are. Yeah. Yeah. So in um, December 2016, you earned your master's degree in physician assistance studies, Mm -hmm. Um, I guess effectively allowing you to to cross over the threshold. And uh, Mm -hmm. what was the decision to to leave um, uh, being a paramedic and actually going into um, the healthcare center? and actually working as a physician assistant? Um, I would say I was um, becoming frustrated a little bit with the, the boundaries of being within um, the paramedic space. Like I kind of said, like the primary care missing link. I kind of wanted to hang out with those patients, figure out why their blood pressure was high every time I saw them, like get them on the right regimen and follow up with them and have that continuity of care, which is something that as a paramedic, you don't usually have. Um, so that was part of what, what shifted that for me. Um, and then PA school, I just, it opened my eyes to a lot of other ways that medicine helps people, um, which is kind of the point, right? It kind of builds upon what you, the knowledge base that you already have. And I felt, um, excited to be able to have patients and take care of patients and use this new knowledge to the best of my ability to, to help them out. Um, so I took my, um, pants, which is the certification test. P-A-N-C-E, not pants, like ones you pull on in the morning. Because you know um, me, I was getting ready to I say know. something. I saw you <laughs> Jeans, joggers, what we talk about. <laughs> yes, not that. Uh. Um, so with the pants, um, I took the certification exam in January um, of that year of, I guess, 2017, because I graduated in 2016, um, and then started working about a month later um, after I knew I passed and all that good stuff. Um, yeah. So, so now you're, you're in the space that you have been working hard to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, are you being able to see the, the goals that you were anticipating, like being able to, to, to check people to see if their um, if their di- diabetic levels are mm-hmm. where they need to be and, you know, trying to get them on pass where they don't have to continue to come see you? Um, yes and no. So yes, in the sense that when I was working in primary care, my first job, Um, I built relationships with patients, um, specifically because I was doing some OB-GYN work. Um, So basically babies and things relating to reproductive systems for women. Um, uh, So I I built lots of relationships with young um, women of color um, who would come in and tell me, you know, all types of stuff about their periods, about their bodies, um, and having those real conversations because I looked young. I still look relatively young. People always tell me I look 16. <laughs> um, you know, having those open conversations because they felt like they could, developing that rapport um, and, and kind of continuing to see them as, as essentially versions of myself, right? Um, and doing that care was really, really rewarding for me. Um, the same thing with older patients with high blood pressure, et cetera. Within the VA system that I work within now, um, I would say it's a really different patient demographic, um, a lot more men, um, and young men to men in their 90s to 100 years old. So 
that shift has, took me a little bit of time to be okay with, right? It's a little bit different rapport. Um, but I would say I still find the same joy in um, bringing those patients in saying, hey, let's talk about your blood pressure. Hey, let's talk about how your cocaine habit is impacting your heart. Let's talk about like the, the, the link here. Let's have those conversations. Let's get you scanned because you had lung nodules two years ago that you didn't follow up on for whatever reason, right? Um, let's get you back in the system that's supporting you or trying to support you. Let's, let's get you this well-rounded care while you're also dealing with your mental health or addiction or whatever's going on um, that brought you in to begin with. So I would say the continuity piece is sort of there because they're inpatient, but not for forever, right? So they can't come back and see me as an outpatient or as like once they get discharged, they have their own primary care physician or PA or mm -hmm. nurse practitioner. So I see them while they're there and I try to get them all tucked in. Um, and then obviously we have lots of folks who come back repetitively for, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so then I see continuity in that way. Not that that's necessarily a good thing because it usually means that their mental health is not um, stable. So that means that they're, they're coming back for mental health readjustments and or for rehab or whatever else, but it allows me to have continuity for their physical health, the things that I was following. Um, so yes and no. Interesting. So mm -hmm. three years after you graduated, I'm mm -hmm. sure once you walked across the stage, they didn't tell you, hey, by the way, pandemic is coming. Be yeah. prepared. And I'm sure all of your coworkers and everything like that were, were not sitting there saying, hey, guess what? We got three years while this is still regular. Um, mm -hmm. But you better, you better put them pants on. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you don't, you know, this thing is going to shock you. So tell me right. about, tell me about um, what that experience has been like. Um, but kind of walk me through the process, walk me through, you know, this is a rumor, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and this is, this is coming from like just the community, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, this is a beer virus that, uh, you know, and people really just kind of plan it up as something that's just, you know, crazy, but you mm -hmm. know, for Americans, we can't, we, it ain't going to hurt. It's not going to come here. It's not going to offend us. It's not going to hurt us, whatever, whatever. And then all of a sudden now the NBA shuts down. Uh, but, listen. The, the NBA became like an inflection point for the community. What, mm -hmm. was the, what was the inflection point in the healthcare system when this thing really started to, to hit home for you guys and, 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 and you guys pretty much had to put your capes on? Um, I would say probably New York. When New York started seeing the level and the number and the overwhelming number of critical patients that were dying from COVID, um, hearing the stories of physicians, nurses, folks who are in healthcare, who are working in those hospitals, when those started kind of coming out, um, I think every other area, at least in my experience in Pittsburgh, every other area was like, oh, we need to be preparing for this. Um, because it was kind of more like a vague threat initially, right? It's like, okay, it's in these different spaces. It's terrifying in China. It's terrifying in Italy. You're seeing these bodies stack, like very terrible and terrifying images all of that. Um, but when it hit New York, it was like, oh, okay, this, this needs to be, we need a plan, right? I think that's how all of us kind of felt. We were, we were all terrified. Um, lots of people ended up working from home and doing telemedicine. Um, that's not something that's feasible for inpatient behavioral health. Um, I need to be able to listen to your lungs on an internal medicine side. The psychiatrists need to be face-to-face -face with you to some degree. Um, so I would say that was probably when I saw management kind of take, take um, well, they were probably having meetings before that that I wasn't privy to, but started actually um, kind of disseminating information about how to stay safe and how we were going to adjust what we did 
um, to make sure that we were all being taken care of and that our patients were being taken care of because we work in an ambulatory unit. Um, so our patients have a room and a bathroom, right, can join, but they are able to walk around. They're able to use a common space. We have a common eating space. There are lots of ways that if one person got sick, that a whole unit of 26 patients, including staff, and outside of that, including staff and other providers who are on and off that unit could be becoming infected and then potentially going home and sharing that or going to another unit on the hospital and spreading it, not knowing they were a vector. Um, so I would say that that was, that was probably the biggest takeaway for us was just how do we limit these folks from, from getting sick? How are we screening them? What are we doing to make sure it's not getting passed along if one person gets sick? Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the, the initial point for the folks that I work with was when New York really got hit and they really did get hit. Um, when that happened, we all kind of were like, this is real. I'm sure management, again, was having these conversations, but we weren't privy to them then. Or for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Pittsburgh isn't, isn't close, but it's also not far. Exactly. Um, and so, and so kind of how has Pittsburgh, uh, from the healthcare, uh, standpoint, like how has, ha have they been able to, uh, to fight this, this, this virus, um, these last two, two and a half months? Um, I would say my, my experience is pretty limited just because I work within the VA system. So I'll give you what I know based on, based on that. I don't know what UPMC and some of the other healthcare systems are doing, but mm -hmm. I'd say Pittsburgh as a community um, once kind of everything got shut down, right, on a state level, um, Pittsburgh, I think people pretty much listened. Um, everybody was doing stay-at-home orders. Folks were really only going out when they needed to. People were really practicing social distancing because I think a lot of people were really nervous and scared, um, which is an appropriate response to a pandemic with a virus that is mutating and things that we don't know how to deal with, right? And people are dying um, all across the age spectrum, not just the elderly, right? Those are um, some common misconceptions that initially people were kind of blown off. It's Corona, it's a beer kind of conversation. But I think that shifted um, when the stay at home orders came across. Um, the, the VA in general, I would say um, kind of the same thing, right? Like we, everybody kind of only did what we what we needed to do. The number of patients that were coming into the hospital significantly decreased, um, which was good. It meant people who didn't need to be in the hospital were not coming. But on the flip side of that, people were also terrified of coming in. So people having heart attacks were staying home um, and dying at home, right? So there's there's this this shift that um, I think was good in some ways because folks who didn't need to be there weren't coming in and exposing people potentially or being exposed, right? Coming right. through an e or coming up to our unit. Um, I'd say overall, I think that helped. Um, I know that our numbers have not been nearly the numbers of New York. The, the fatality rates, mortality rates haven't been there um, as far as I know. So I, I would say that that, is a, that was probably a good thing. I think that everybody being initially pretty cautious and scared. I'd say now um, that shift, it's nice out now. I know you guys probably have warmer weather in general, but over here, you know, we don't get warm weather all the time. So folks are outside trying to do fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and also kind of shifting from like the fear because now that it hasn't hit us the way it was hitting New York, um, folks are kind of laissez-faire, kind of blowing it off a little bit less mm. um, strict about those six feet distances, about making sure that they're wearing a mask. And some people are blatantly disregarding all of that, right? Um, 
which as a healthcare professional is terrifying because um, it wouldn't be, we kind of mentioned this earlier, it's never, it's not never, but it's very rarely the folks who are standing without a mask, like screaming their faces off in the, the governor's office. It's rarely those folks who are gonna be the ones getting sick. It's the people that they come into contact after that with, their families, people that are out in public that don't know that they've had an exposure to somebody who mm-hmm. has been not wearing a mask for months and has been just not paying attention um, to what the CDC is saying. and all of those things, right? Um, And that's kind of the point of public health and public health crises and why this had to be a full shutdown. Um, Though again, folks will say that the economic repercussions um, are are also a factor and I I hear that. I work in medicine and I'm blessed to have a job, right? I I get that I'm coming from a different perspective than a lot of people. Um, So I think that it's a super complex issue overall. but I think Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh and spe- specifically, um, did a good job on shutting down and everybody listening. I'd mm-hmm. say that we're probably gonna get another spike at some point. Um, and I think people need to be aware of that. When, where, how, I can't answer those questions. I don't think really anybody can, um, but yeah, that's about all I got for you on that one, the COVID. That's crazy. Well, let me be one, I think amongst thousands, millions to just say thank you for, you know, putting your life on the line every single day to go in and really help restore people from a mental health standpoint, from a, just a general health standpoint. Uh, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, I also want to thank you for the work that you do in terms of representation, in terms of being able to have access, having community, and again, having that representation. I say that because in on January 7th, 2020, after about what a year and a half work, worth mm-hmm. of work, um, you were able to charter, to start, to have an inauguration of the National Society. I'm not going to look at my notes. I'm going to get this right. The <laughs> National Society of Black Physician Assistants. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I remember you telling me about this 2017? Mm-hmm. Probably. And it was yeah. like something that you had had said that like, you know, it was an interest to you because of the experiences that you were having as not only a woman in healthcare, but also a black person in healthcare and not really seeing the representation from the existing organizations um, in this space that you were in. Mm-hmm. And so walk me through, uh, you know, where was the pain point and what mm-hmm. allowed you out of the other hundreds and thousands of uh, black physician assistants who just, I won't say that they're just dealing with it, but what, what made you take action? Mm. Then talk to me about uh, the work that you did from 2017 all the way up to January 7th, 2020. Whew, that's a lot of work. Okay, I can do that. Um, first, I'm gonna deflect your thank you for, for healthcare for me, but I'm gonna deflect that to the folks who are truly like in the ICUs and stuff. We showed up to work and did our jobs during this healthcare time, but like those folks are the, they deserve that. Yeah, those are those. So let me shine that on them. But um, so yeah, the NSVPA, I think it's been a thought since I started my physician assistant career um, as a student, really. Um, There were maybe a handful of folks of color in my in my group of 40-ish plus kids um, at Pitt when I started my program. Um, which is actually a a good number. Uh, (laughs) Let me be very clear about that. Uh, But um, as I progressed through my training, um, my 
the preceptors I was seeing, the folks who I was seeing, um, who were introducing me to different parts of medicine, the professors that I had, um, they were all white folks, which is, which is cool. You know, they knew their stuff and I'm not trying to take that away from them, but it's very obvious um, when you're a person of color, when you're not seeing anybody else who represents what you look like in any space in your classroom, when you're going out onto clinical sites, stuff like that. Um, so during that time, my second year specifically, um, when I was doing clinical rotations, we had nine rotations um, from everything from emergency medicine, family practice. I chose cardiology as my elective because I was interested in it, cardiothoracic surgery. Um, yeah, so during two, I would say two different experiences really stuck out for me. One was with a, um, a provider who's a really good provider um, who I really cared about as a human being who I walked in with my hair curly and down as I tend to do. I wear my natural hair to work and I did then too. Um, and he kind of said jokingly, is your hair supposed to look like that or did you get caught in the rain? Mind you, it wasn't raining. I said, mm, okay. <laughs> right. That's awesome. But about those dynamics, that hierarchy, right? Like I'm a student. If yeah. I'm trying to educate you about the inappropriateness of you trying to tell me about whether my natural hair is something that should show up in an office or not, mm -hmm. you know I'm a good student and I've been doing really good work for you because that's the feedback you're giving me. And in knowing him, I know it wasn't intentionally malicious, but kind of just that missing piece of like, mm, probably shouldn't be saying that. Mm-hmm. I supposed to, to, to have that conversation with somebody who truly holds in their hand, whether I pass that rotation or not, right? Kind of those dynamics that, that exist. Um, and then the second one was uh, my cardiology rotation with um, a really great cardiology group of folks. Um, and it was toward the end of my career and I was looking at jobs and kind of mentioned that I wanted to um, do work in communities that looked like me and existed like me. Um, and, <laughs> and I kind of said like in an under, under represented area, I want to be somewhere where there are people who look like me, who, who need providers, who want providers that look like me, kind of that sense. Um, and he said, you're going to waste your talent because they don't listen. Um, and basically tried to convince me that I should be working in primary care in like the North or South Hills, which unless you're from Pittsburgh, doesn't really mean anything, but um, like suburbia, essentially um, outside of the city of Pittsburgh. And I said, mm, not really interested at all in that because he was offering to make phone calls, again, trying to use his position to help position me. Um, but I had to be very clear that I didn't want to work at those spaces. Um, and he's like, okay, if you're choosing to work somewhere, um, where they won't respect you and won't listen to you and won't actually, um, take the medications that you order them, then, um, you've got to work for, um, this other physician, Dr. Hall, who's wonderful, who worked at the Federally Qualified Health Center, the East Liberty Family Healthcare Center, which is a fantastic resource um, for low-income families. Everybody, actually, I go there for my own primary care still, but um, they have sliding scale. They don't require insurance. They have translators. They have folks who are helping you apply for insurance. Like, they are doing the work in the community, mm -hmm. um, and so he actually linked me with that resource, and those were the folks um, that I worked for for eight months. It was a diverse group of physicians, um, medical assistants, um, providers in general. The patient population was just as diverse. It was a fantastic learning experience and it was wonderful um, to exist in that space. Um, and, and then kind of coming to 
the VA, which is um, everybody, I guess, probably thinks of it as a group of older white men <laughs> uh, who you're taking care of. I mean, the diversity between white and black folks and other folks of, of different um, ethnicities exists there too, but I would say it is a primarily white area to work within. Um, and so uh, kind of the experiences that I've had both as a, as a student and then as a provider pro providing healthcare um, and, and really connecting with brown and black folks um, at the VA when I, when I work. And I, have, I had one specific experience where a black man said to me, you know, nobody's ever listened to me about my pain the way you did. Hmm. And I just, I just listened to his conversation about his pain and we had a conversation, a real frank conversation about the fact that he was not a candidate for something like opiates. Um, for pain control because of his concurrent substance abuse that he didn't want to switch from. He didn't want to stop using cocaine. Huh. And okay, I mean, that's cool if that's, that's truly what you're saying. I can educate you from now till I'm blue in the face, and I will, because that is my job. <laughs> it was my job to make sure that you understand the harm that you might be doing to your body. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about your pain as a separate issue, as an issue that we can actually deal with instead of just writing him off as somebody who only wanted opiates and only wants controlled substances because they have this addiction and addiction behavior, right? Um, and truly, we gave, I gave him a, a lidocaine patch as part of his pain modality treatment. And a lidocaine patch is something that you can buy kind of over the counter. It's something that we use a lot. And he told me his pain was better than he's ever experienced it. He's like, how can I can move? My back pain is amazing. How did you know this existed? How did I'm like, how, who, who are you interacting with on a provider level that's not hearing you or you're not hearing, mm. you know, like here's the missing communication piece that led somebody to give you a, a lidocaine patch. How many years after you've been having chronic back pain? But right? your professor said that they won't listen to you. I know. That's what he said. As if opposed would, to not you not yeah. listening to them. <laughs> right. right. But, but that's it, right? The challenge that, that you, mm. you see is that, a physician's never going to, or a provider's never want to, going to want to be told that it's, it's their way of interacting with the patient. It's their way of communicating with the patient, right? Like if you have a hierarchy and you come in saying, Hey, I'm the doc, you're the patient, you're going to listen to me. That works maybe some of the time. That's fantastic if it does for you. And that's your patient dynamic. But I would say most people would like to have a conversation with a provider who they feel like listens to them, respects them, sees them as a human being and as a person mm -hmm. um, and, you know, somebody who's making, you know, making the money or is just a job and a chart that they have to review. Right. So, and I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush stroke, all of medicine and all of providers, but that's kind of the, the most striking distinction that I've noticed. So kind of all of that coming together um, for me, it's always been a recurring idea for me. Like, Hey, why don't we have a group of, Black PAs who can kind of be this community, who can have conversations with students, pre-PA students who don't know what a PA is, right? Folks are, are constantly asking me what a PA is, what's the difference between a PA and a nurse practitioner or a physician, why did I choose to be a PA? Um, even folks that I treat, why aren't you going to medical school? Why don't you want to be a, a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Conversations before beforehand, right, with communities, um, specifically for me, of, of color, specific the black communities, right? Um, let's have those conversations. Like, let's talk to the babies when they're young <laughs> and tell them what a PA is. Look at all of these, this range of healthcare um, jobs that they can, that they can go for, not just PAs, but respiratory therapists, physical therapists, you know, you hear doctor, nurse, right? Like that, that's what sticks out. But there's this range yeah. of great jobs. So if you like medicine, there are these things. 
the, from that community aspect, pre-PA to PA students like me who are having weird experiences with, with preceptors, like who do you talk to about that? Why, what, what's the point where it becomes harassment? What's the point where it becomes somewhere where you need to get out of because it's unsafe for you or unhealthy for you mentally? Who do you have those conversations with if all of your faculty and advisors are white? Mm. Are you able to bounce that off of someone of color? Because primarily most of your students that you're interacting with are also white. Do they understand, right? Do you feel isolated in those feelings? Do you feel like an imposter during your classes because you feel like everybody else is smarter and everybody else has this knowledge and you feel like you're failing? Right. Do you have that? And how do you parse through those thoughts mm -hmm. with someone who's not of color? And can we create a community of folks of color who are all through the spectrum from pre-PA all the way to practicing PAs and allies who can help you kind of adjust and speak and maybe just have a conversation about what that looks like? Um, and then for folks on my end, right, PAs who are practicing, having a group of people who have been in this position assistant track for 15 years working, 25 years who are working. Let's have those conversations about what it looked like for you, what it looks like now, what are the strengths and weaknesses that you identify? Because I'm only seeing my snapshot, mm -hmm. this is what I see. Um, and having those conversations and building mentorship programs with folks who are down on the other side of pre-A, like still thinking about PA school, right? Um, developing those relationships so that as we grow, hopefully, because we only make up 3.6%. Um, so as we grow <laughs> as a group, we're able to kind of be self-sufficient. Let's talk about what it's like to lose a patient. Um, let's talk about what it's like to have somebody say that you have to be a nurse because they don't believe that black folks can be anything but, right? Like, let's have those conversations and let's do it in a space that's supportive and um, it's just able to, to truly be there. And essentially, I looked at it as a way for me <laughs> to build something for past me, current me, future me but mm -hmm. that, that I see in all these other folks who are asking me questions about what I do and all of that. Um, so that was a really long-winded response and I apologize, but essentially that was kind of my process. What, what areas of weakness and strength I identified in each part of my education mm -hmm. and then going forward, um, what I hope to bring to the profession and the people that I interact with, students and faculty and um, peers, and then what I, I would hope that other folks of color want to do for, for this community that we're developing and growing and that's been around for plenty of years. Um, yeah, so. So, so, you, so you're actually five months in, right? And so now <laughs> organized, how is it going? Um, mm. how, are you, how are you getting your outreach? How are you, how are you bringing in members? Like mm -hmm. walk me through that process because you know, for me, I'm thinking about like, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Nesby, right? And, mm -hmm. and how it founded. And it was, you know, just a small amount of people, but it's mm -hmm. grown to now this large international organization, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that's something that you're just like, we got to grow, really have to grow real fast, have to scale, have to scale, right. have to scale. But, you know, walk me through now how this has provided you with that community build, um, mm -hmm. you know, for your profession. Mm -hmm. And how are you now seeing this being? um a, a a benefit to to other black uh pas sure so i would say uh the first part was the development of our website which took time mm -hmm. um nsbpa.org um if you're interested uh so the development of that website and creating the content for that so actually writing out our goals our mission statement um, making sure that we slash i knew what i wanted to to bring right not being 
being very mindful of the fact that my experience as a black PA is not everyone's experience as a black PA and leaving the door open for folks of every part of this to come and kind of bring whatever they felt like the profession needed um, into the space. Um, so then we have social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's, everything's at the NSBPA at whatever, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, Insta. Um, and we have a social media chair, Erica, who's awesome. She loves doing it. She's putting up content all the time. So honestly, I would say that the social media piece has been really helpful because things like Instagram and having content about um, Monday is like our tips and tricks, like how, what, what helped us get into PA school, what study habits are best, um, how do you um, talk to folks about jobs and how did you get your first job? Um, all of those things that, that we think folks might be interested in knowing. Um, we highlight a member on Fridays, so folks email us, let us know they wanna be featured, we'll do that. Sundays, we try to bring in some type of current news or literature about, um, specifically about black folks and medicine and kind of all of that. Um, and I would say that that's one way that we bring in lots of folks. We've gotten really good feedback. We did um, an Instagram live last weekend um, and got lots of folks involved who are both in PA school and folks who are pre-PA in different parts of their education, just really having conversations um, about, right now it's COVID, right? Um, mm -hmm. Asking like for them to try to get shadowing hours and things that are required for CASPA, oh, which is awesome. Yeah, with the generalized, um, the generalized system for application. I would say that um, we were supposed to go to the AAPA conference, which is an annual conference held by the American Academy of Physician Assistants. Um, it was in Nashville this year, COVID life. Um, so we'd love to meet our members face to face. So kind of our Instagram live. Um, was our version of that and we'll probably do several others just to kind of meet people who are interested um, We have a forum that people can get on um, it's broken up by state and then has different questions Folks can get on and look for people in the same state. Um, the ultimate goal once this is all over is to um, Come up with a directory of sorts to allow folks who are somewhere in their education to find folks who are on the other side of it like myself um, to help be mentors and if they can't find somebody right in their city which is sometimes really hard right um, to have the option to go within the state or within um, that general region geographically um, to make those connections because they're so important when you're looking for jobs when you need somebody to write a letter of reference when you need shadowing hours right how are you getting those um, mm -hmm. if you didn't who was a doctor as a parent or a physician assistant as a parent or a nurse as a parent who has those connections already pre-built um, so the goal is really just to, to try to fill in the, the gaps there. I mean, overarching goal, of course, is to decrease health disparities in black communities. Um, but I think that a good step in doing that is eliminating barriers for PA students to apply, right? Talking about GRE, um, the graduate level exam. Is it, is it something that we need to be doing right now in education? Because that's a barrier, that's expensive, that requires time and money, mm -hmm. right? Um, talking about how people are going to be getting those shadowing hours, right? They need to have patient care contact hours. How are they getting those? If you don't grow up in a space that has a, a huge medical center down the street, right? Like, how are you doing all of that? And trying to, trying to help folks find kind of a niche wherever they are to make sure they're able to get to their ultimate goal of being a PA student and being a, an applicant that people in schools want. Um, and then going forward, again, having that community and being able to reach back and do the same thing for folks that you see trying to do that. Um, I really think that that is what the goal of the NSPPA is, is to 
create this community of practitioners and providers who understand the importance of having an adequately diverse healthcare system. So the patients that come in have a choice. Um, you know, like if that man who wanted the lidocaine patch looked at all the PCPs, primary care physicians or primary care providers in his network and said, oh, there's this black girl, let me go see her, you know, and came into my office, how many years earlier could we have gotten that lidocaine patch on his back? How many sure. years earlier could we have had that conversation about cocaine and heart problems and kidney problems and all of those things that I feel like are, are important conversations that I'm having now with him. So, man, y'all are doing it. I can't wait. I can't wait to see how this grows. And I, and I, and I hope that uh, the build community love network is able to, to pretty much provide, you know, extra platforms uh, and, and extra platform to, to push your message, to push yeah. you know, what you guys are trying to do from the East coast to the West coast uh you know to the the heartland of america just to you know continue to make sure that we're serving those uh communities that are underrepresented so that's big you talked about and this is the last thing you talked about uh the 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 mental trauma that goes into seeing people at their worst and not mm -hmm. always being able to bring them back to their best mm -hmm. so you have now picked up yoga and so you've done it from a a, a student standpoint to just be able to do it yourself and now you're teaching. Talk to me about the principles of yoga and talk to me about how it's helping you uh, navigate through your day-to-day -day life. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I started practicing yoga probably five or six years ago at this point on, on my own using YouTube videos kind of thing um, and slowly began to become more and more interested taking community classes um, the Kingsley Association is a community center in Pittsburgh um, where Felicia Savage Fried Lane Friedman um, works and she is a light. Um, she's a fantastic provider. Um, she's wonderful. You take one of her classes and you want to just like be her best friend always. Truly, that's how she is. She's one of those that's people. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so meeting her, uh, she works for Yoga Roots on location and um, or she created Yoga Roots on location um, and started doing these trainings, which is a 200 hour yoga teacher training um, with a trauma informed base. Like the, the entire practice is, is talking to a group of black and brown folks about everything. Right. Starting with the ancestral trauma and things that we hold on to and feel in our bodies as black and brown folks existing on lands that aren't ours, right? I mean, kind of having that wherewithal um, and then kind of just getting all the way down, getting all the way down, feeling everything, <laughs> uh, working through trauma, processing trauma together um, in a space that is open and accepting and is willing to both catch you when you fall, but also explain to you where you might have some not correct misconceptions and things like that, right? It's all about growth and development as a group. Mm -hmm. um, there are white folks in that group too, and there was lots of very difficult conversations that occurred. Um, but essentially through that, um, I learned the style of yoga that I, that I teach, which is a restorative gentle um, yoga class. It's through Raja Yoga, which has eight different limbs. Um, I won't go into each detail, but essentially the actual physical practice is only one of those limbs. There's breath work, um, there's lots of non-harming, there's, there's just lots there um, that we can have probably a whole nother um, <laughs> podcast about. So yeah, we should just do, a, you should just do one whole, we should just do one whole episode of just yoga and just allow yeah. you to just come in here and just give people the opportunity to just understand, 
you know, what that looks like. We all face trauma in different yeah. ways, either from how we grow up, um, you know, from depression, um, yeah. from things not going their way. I mean, yeah. this, this, this pandemic is, is mm-hmm. raising an entire mm-hmm. generation Mm-hmm. of people who are going to have trauma for the rest of their life, whether it's from death from a loved one, uh, the loss of a business that you've been, that you've been cranking out, trying to get for the longest time, the loss of a family home, uh, just because finances aren't where they need to be. So there's going to be different levels of trauma. So, you know, having someone like you coming out and doing uh, those types of things for, for, for actual restoration of yourself, and mm-hmm. then the fact that you add that value and you provide that to communities. That's amazing that you just give people the ability uh, to, to, uh, re- to actually release mm-hmm. and, and find that mental freedom again. That's, that's, right. that's beautiful. So where can people reach you if they want to find you? Uh, a couple places. So my email is kjreed34 at gmail.com. You're welcome to reach out to that email. Uh, the nsbpa.com or at gmail.com is another way if you have specific interests in the National Society of Black Physician Assistants, um, obviously our social media, um, which is the <laughs> NSVPA in all of the different formats. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, those are, those are it. My Instagram handle is underscore at that girl cat or at that girl cat underscore somewhere in there. Um, but I can email you that if they really want to use the social media platform, that's fine too. Um, yeah, I'm open to have conversations about everything we spoke about and more. So if anybody has questions, thoughts, concerns, feel free to reach out. This is, this is all about development overall, right? It's nice to have this platform. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. No, for sure. So leave us with something that's encouraging, inspiring as we enter into, uh, as we continue to build throughout this week. Mm. The only thing that keeps coming to my brain during this time is we are all human and we are all here for each other um, because I've seen lots of folks that are out here for themselves right now. And, and that can't be the mentality specifically now in the pandemic, but always we're interconnected, you know. All right. There you have it, folks. Thank you for listening to episode four of the Build Community Love podcast with Catherine Reed. So much great information. Guys, she is all about trying to uh just mind body and soul mind body and soul trying to help build grow and allow the mind the body and soul to thrive um we need people like that in our circles we need people like that in our life um continue to follow Catherine again she is the founder and president of the national society of black physicians assistance n s BPA. So look her up, look it up, um, and continue to be inspired, you guys. All right, take it away, Tiff. Thank you for listening to another episode on the Build Community Through Love podcast. Subscribe on all platforms to stay up to date with new episodes. Also, stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Build Community Through Love, and visit our website at buildcommunitythroughlove.com. Let's keep working, y'all. And if someone asks, tell them we're building. Thank you.